0: Hi, and welcome to TGIF. Thank goodness it's funny. Right, we have to talk fast, but stay tuned because it's almost time for Full House. Right, and then after that, it's our friend Harriet's new show, Family Matters. Right, it's a big night, and that's no Baba Sticky.
1: I just wanted to let you know about my study group.
0: Oh, don't be a funny duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission.
1: I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford.
0: I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line.
1: It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes.
0: Welcome to the Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And today we are revving up our DeLorean and activating the flux capacitor. What are we talking about this week, Amy?
1: This week we're not quite going all the way back to 1985, but we are going back to 1989 in the inaugural season of TGIF.
0: Yeah, we are revisiting the first ever broadcast of the infamous TGIF lineup. Infamous. Now, well, according to uh, what I learned in the Three Amigos, when you're not just famous, you're infamous, right? Oh, that means I see. that it's it's even better. <laughs> this may be Amy, uh, the time when we reach that rite of passage that every podcast goes through, where we get. People writing in correcting us. Right? That's right. Because there was a lot of sort of confusion and apocryphal stuff out there about when and where or at and, least and when what
1: consists of <laughs> Yeah,
0: what the deal is with exactly when TGIF started. I went into this thinking it began in 1988 with a lineup that included Mr. Belvedere and, you know, all these other shows and it it took quite a lot and I guess I'm trying to get out in front of the controversy that if you if you look at the internet there is not a simple single answer as to when TGIF started. But why don't you walk us through our sort of fact-finding of the origins of all this?
1: Right. So according to ABC, the network that aired TGIF, there is a simple answer, and that is September 22nd, 1989. And that was the first time the branding TGIF, thank goodness it's funny, Mm -hmm. was used for their Friday night block of programming. Now, prior to that, you are correct. In the 88-89 season, you had Perfect Strangers, Full House, Mr. Belvedere, and just the 10 of us as the Friday night lineup. That was not called TGIF that season. Um It was the brainchild of some young producer named Jim something or other, and he kind of came up with this idea of we should use this turn of phrase, TGIF, or we should somehow brand the block of programming to make sure that it's people know that it's always going to be the same and they can watch it and they had already kind of done that with like a terrific Tuesday and Wacky Wednesday and they had already done that with some of their other nights so they were trying to find something specific for the Friday night time slot or that Friday night block of television and they landed on TGIF and they were like, oh, well, we can't say God so we have to change it to thank goodness it's Friday and then somebody else was like, why not thank goodness it's funny?
0: Yeah, which is ironic because nowadays I think a lot of these actors would be happy to throw in the God stuff. They'd just be like, I don't know, maybe they'd they'd have a problem with the thanks part. I don't know.
1: (laughs) Well, it was that they didn't think it was going to get past the censors, the network censors, if they were like, thank God, you can't take the Lord's name in vain on that Friday night family programming. So officially, according to ABC, the very first airing of TGIF with that Branding was september twenty second, nineteen eighty nine. and the lineup might surprise you because we had a it's brand new season of shows, and we had them throw something in there as a sneak preview. So we have Full House, then Family Matters in its pilot episode. Perfect Strangers, and instead of just the 10 of us for this one episode only, this one week only, it was a sneak preview of what was going to be a Saturday night show, mm. Free Spirit. So we get the pilot episode of Free Spirit starring Allison Hannigan, yes. pre-Buffy, and that was the lineup for the very first TGIF.
0: Yeah, you know, look, our format is always that we try to track a trope over the course of these four disparate episodes. And even when we break from that format a little bit, like maybe we follow along with a certain actor's career, like Melissa Joan Hart or Julia Louis-Dreyfus, there is still a through line uh, to to sort of trace so that we're never just doing like a straight-up watch-along podcast where we watch an old TV show and kind of recap it and say what we felt and this was the first time that even though i've been looking forward to doing this sort of time capsule tgif journey since we started the podcast this was one of our original episode ideas this is the first episode of these 40 whatever podcasts we've done where I did kind of feel like, ah, there really isn't anything tying these, these shows together other than, you know, the, the branding stuff and the fact that they would connect them with these interstitial little scenes where they would have the actors in character, you know, taking you from one show to the next. But in terms of the episodes themselves, I guess this is the challenge I'm going to sort of lay down to us now at the beginning of the podcast is what the How, you know, is there any case to be made for these four shows having anything to do with each other, you know, thematically or philosophically or whatever? Or are we just looking at, you know, a bunch of crap that they threw on TV on Friday night and hoped we would watch?
1: Well, I I have two things to say. Number one, I think the thing that's going to be the through line is schmaltz, because that's what these shows are. And number two, you mentioned the interstitials. The little kind of bumper things that would happen before and after each episode. Yes. And this also part of this new TGIF rebranding was that they were going to have one of the casts of the shows host. Each Friday night. So the very first TGIF is hosted by the cast of Full House. And they have, you know, these funny little mice that are like carrying the TGIF letters and these little cartoon mice that are coming in and doing all these funny little, little things. And so uh, this was before that song, the TGIF song that was introduced in 1990, the next season. Mm -hmm. So we don't have that at all. And we also have the cast of Full House in this evening the very beginning these shows for the so they can have those interstitials these shows are all shorter than the normal like 22 minutes to make room for those things. And the Cast of Full House explains at the top what's going to happen on Friday nights that they're going to have somebody host and there are always going to it's always going to be cast members from the different shows and they're going to be your host for the night and you can go on YouTube and find oh, the yeah. cast of just the 10 of us and Perfect Strangers in character hosting these nights and then talking about like, "Oh, I can't wait to watch our right. show."
0: Now, yes, this is what- what absolutely breaks my brain about these segments. And of course, I understand this is taking things too seriously and being a nerd, but... Yeah, like we said, the actors are in character. You are watching Larry and Balky sit on their couch or Jesse and Joey from Full House sit on their couch.
1: And say how much they love the antics of Balky right. and Larry then they or say, whatever.
0: Let's tune into the next episode of Full House or Just the Ten of Us. I wasn't even, I don't think I remembered the parts where they were even talking about their own shows, which is even weirder. The fact that they live in a world where family matters Matters is a show on television but they also live in a world where harriet the mom from family matters is a real person who was their elevator operator yeah like it is just wild it is some crazy being and John they always Malkovich, talk about it. they're MC like Escher harriet
1: harriet our elevator operators new show tune in and, yes. the, and that's the kind of things they say and yeah it it is so like meta in a way, right? But yeah, I think the whole point is that they're just like you and me. They sit down with their family on Friday nights and they watch these shows too.
0: Yes, exactly. And it's all very fun. It's just funny... I feel like if we were doing it now, or if I were doing it, I would say, let's have Mark Lynn Baker and Bronson Pinchot introduce the shows as themselves and not open up this whole can of worms with the multiverse of are they actors? Heck (laughs) no, we
1: need to see them being silly and continuing the antics. Otherwise, it's not worth it. And I don't know about you, but I used to get annoyed when my parents would like get up and make popcorn or try to talk during the commercials when these interstitials would come on, I'd be like, shh, I want to hear this because I thought they were so funny. And you always got to see them doing just sort of like little different things than they would do if they were in their like full on story characters.
0: Yeah, but I think I also picked up on as a kid, even though I would not have articulated it in this way they did not have the same writing staff necessarily for these interstitials as they did for the proper shows, or maybe they did and they were just like, you know, scribbling it down five minutes before they went to air or something. Like you could just tell there was a slapdash nature similar to the banter in awards shows sometimes, especially in the 80s where it's like, you could just tell this was not like their A-team coming up with this dialogue, you know, and there was a little bit of a different character to it to me seeing them do these little scenes instead of the proper shows
1: yes it was it's still funny I disagree in certain ways with you I still enjoy watching them while we were getting ready to watch these episodes I was flipping through YouTube watching old ones that didn't align necessarily with the first TGIF because it's hard to find the original TGIF the first airing yeah. uh, clips but you can find tons of ones from the second week and third week and beyond
0: yeah and at the very least i did appreciate back in the day how it made the evening feel like an event and yes. it sort of tied it all together and then we got more of that with snick and all that this stuff. is my
1: friday night plans for right. like all of my childhood this is what i did on friday night
0: all right so let's get into full house these are all season premieres but full house is season three we've got a major overlapping trope here because one of our you know we've got a spreadsheet page devoted to family vacations and then the subtrope of that Hawaiian vacations. That's right. And that's what this is going to be. And
1: this is one of those classic episodes of Full House. If you, anytime you're seeing any type of like footage of, hey, remember all those crazy things that the Full House people got up to? The Hawaii trip and them on stage performing with John Stamos and his band. That's definitely part of it.
0: Oh, yeah. And you can see the same kind of production style that we had when head of the class went to Russia, right, Right. where we're throwing away the whole multicam studio thing. We're grabbing a couple of camcorders and we're going on location and, you know, we'll fill in fake laughs or show it to an audience and record them laughing or whatever after the fact. But this is going to be clearly all cheap video, which is a stark contrast, because as we've talked about before, these Miller Boyette shows look great in terms of the way they're shot on nice film and everything say what you will about the schmaltzy content but they they have this like amply budgeted sort of like nice look to them that you completely lose when you take the crew to Hawaii. And yes, it very much has that shot on video sort of like, oh, let's go over to this side of the resort and grab a couple shots here. That kind of feel.
1: Yeah, I felt like that was only true for some of the shots, though. Like, I th- I think the like when they're coming into the hotel and they're they're in that like portico where they're getting out of the airport van and whatever, that definitely has that feel. The concert footage, which is, it looks like it was shot for a music video kind of like from way back at the you know, in the sound booth or whatever that has that feel but when they're actually on the beach like they get stranded Gilligan's Island style on this, like the wrong side of this island and they're just trying to kind of make their way and figure things out. That has sharp quality. It's more it's better, like higher quality video. It's
0: the same hybrid approach I think that we saw in our camping episodes where you have yeah once we're situated in some place we can make a little set or at least have a controlled lighting setup or whatever but yeah before we get to hawaii this starts out uh cold open back at the house all i really want to say about this is i love joey and jesse's business attire right this (laughs) comes this begins with them strolling into the the kitchen where the rest of the family is and this is during the days where joey and jesse are
1: (laughs) color me bad. yes oh
0: do not think that i don't have color me bad written here in my (laughs) notes because i absolutely do this is when joey and jesse are business partners right they have their own little advertising agency where they write jingles and stuff and yeah they're doing the thing of suits with turtleneck shirts underneath Uh, jesse's got this green turtleneck and like a navy suit hey look you might be hearing me describe it and say it doesn't look good. It does. I'm sorry. Jesse <laughs> I mean, looks great. if
1: you like Color Me Bad, it looks great. You can think of, if you're not familiar with Color Me Bad, think of the Andy Samberg, Justin Timberlake, Dick in a Box song. Same, yeah. same.
0: Yeah, it's that kind of look, but I don't know. I really bought into it. But it, it really is just one quick scene that establishes, like, Danny the dad has arranged for them to all go to Hawaii, you know, roll the, roll the theme song, we're off. So
1: this is all a celebration that it's been two years since they moved in and became a family. Beginning of season three, it -hmm. has been two years, right? Danny has decided he's going to book a vacation for the whole family to Hawaii and Becky is there to celebrate. She's already dating Jesse and she's like, oh, I'll hold down the fort here, even though we're going to be airing reruns. And he's like, no, what are you kidding? You're coming. And she's like, no, I couldn't possibly. And Danny's like, your ticket's right here. And she's like, oh, yay. And so off they go.
0: Yeah, this is definitely one of those, you know, everyone come along. We're going to take 10 seconds to address any logistical concerns of why we can't all just immediately go to Hawaii. And they do. Uh, as soon as we come back from commercial, there is a stock footage shot of a surfer. It just reminded me of sometimes for my work, I have to go on to Shutterstock or whatever and search for things. And it's like when I'm feeling really lazy and you just grab the first three clips that come up when you type in technology or whatever it is. This <laughs> felt like that. Like someone typed in Hawaii and was like, okay, a, a surfer, a, I don't know, a palm tree, let's do it. And yeah, there's just this sequence of of B-roll basically. And then we get the family arriving, like I said, completely different look. We've got that video on location feel and Joey immediately upon arriving falls in love uh, the way Garth does in the movie right, Wayne's World. Exactly. He sees a woman from across the room. Everything stops. In Wayne's World, you get Dreamweaver playing in the background and this, it's just like generic lovey-dovey Yeah, music. tinkly
1: and like everything gets kind of fuzzy around her and she, she's a hula dancer, like welcoming them to the resort and giving everybody the lay. And so she is like, you know, looking at him and winking And turns around and gives him this big smile, and he's just sort of frozen. And then all the dream sequencey stuff goes away, and he turns back to his family, and he's like, "I'm in love." And then turns around, and she's gone.
0: Yeah. So it sort of establishes this like mystical quality. Like, does this woman even exist? Is she, you know, is she a figment of his imagination? Nobody knows. But that's going to be Joey's story in a nutshell. Danny, the dad, Bob Sackett, has meticulously arranged an itinerary on his clipboard of fun.
1: Oh, yes. Now, if we're going to talk about missed opportunities for tropes, this right here, the clipboard of fun, is absolutely a trope that you can track through vacation episodes with family TV shows.
0: Interesting. Well, I got to imagine that's always got to be Danny Tanner's role in all of this, right? It reminds me of Dr. Samuels, again, in the head of the class thing, right? You're always going to have somebody that's like, we have to keep on schedule. We have to stick to the agenda.
1: That's right. And
0: that's going to be Danny. You know, we get some fun stuff later on with his clipboard being thrown into the ocean and stuff.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Once they get stranded on the island, everybody keeps trying to do different things to like find food or go fishing or whatever. And the stupid clipboard of fun keeps washing back up or getting hooked on the fishing line or everybody who goes into the water somehow manages to find this clipboard of fun that they keep throwing out into the ocean they're all annoyed at Danny for getting them in the predicament in the first place. Right.
0: And so uh, what we start getting into is what's going to become, I feel like, a very familiar vibe for these kinds of shows when they do these vacation episodes where the whole thing kind of seems like sponsored by the Hawaii Board of Tourism. Right, right. Which
1: we actually get in the version that we watch on like whatever it was, Netflix or Paramount or wherever we watched it. It is still in the streaming version at the very end. It's like travel and accommodations for the entire cast and crew of Full House. Yeah, Northwest Airlines. Brought to you by Northwest Airlines.
0: And Hilton Country Club. Yeah, and of course, this is the same show that later on is going to go to Disney World. And, you know, every ABC show at some point is going to have a two-part Disney World episode. But yeah, you see them exploring, and it is, you know, part of it is a little bit of that travelogue thing. It's like they used to say, you know, people people would go to James Bond movies because you you could never go to Jamaica if you were an average, you know, working class person. So right. that was one of the reasons why you would go to the movies. And if you want to be less cynical about it and say, well, it's not just that they're getting paid off by these companies and stuff, you could say, yeah, this is still a time when, you know, your average family watching these movies isn't necessarily going to get to go to these places or hasn't been to these places. And so there's a lot of just like, hey, look at this cool stuff that you can do and hawaii right and this is where we get the introduction to the concept of the the menehune is that how you say i think
1: so yeah Mm
0: -hmm. so explain
1: the it's this like magical idea that there are these creatures that were the original inhabitants of the uh, the islands before the hawaiian people came to live on the islands and the menehune are um like they're good luck if you see one it's good luck and and they're described as being sort of small childlike creatures so i'm imagining like the hawaiian version of a leprechaun
0: yeah, kind of. Or like the little um if you if you remember in Frozen they have like the little troll friends. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, something like that. But definitely a and I think there's even a picture of them because they find all this out by, you know, Becky and the two daughters, or the the three daughters, I think, all kind of come across the yeah, They this walk up sign. to the sign. Yeah, yeah. So they're doing touristy stuff. Right. Uh and yeah, Rebecca reads them the whole thing and it explains just like you said. And at some point, Michelle crosses paths. Does this happen right away, or is it's that not a little Michelle? Later? It's Stephanie. Okay. Stephanie
1: gets like obsessed. Michelle's still a baby here. You, yeah. you know, she still has to be picked right. up. She she's talks, so little. but yeah, yeah, very small. This is the first season that the "you got it, dude" like comes uh-huh. into play. That's how young she is. She's literally been a baby up until this right. season.
0: How rude has already been established as Stephanie's
1: exactly. Here. Well, so Stephanie kind of gets very enamored with this idea of the menahune and she wants to find one. And she's like, oh, that would be so great. Wouldn't that be cool? They're our size, you know, whatever. And DJ's like, come on, Stephanie, there's no way this is real, you know, just kind of dumps water all over the whole idea. And Stephanie's like, well, you know, I don't, you still believe in Mr. Bear or whatever, don't you? And she's like, I mean, I guess so. So they kind of have this little, like, DJ's trying to sort of placate her yeah. magical thinking. And then, yeah, later on on the island, Stephanie, they're all out kind of looking for water or looking for civilization once they kind of shipwreck on this island. And she does run into a, a little boy who is in like a grass skirt and some sort of traditional um, garb. And they both scream and run the right. opposite directions from each other.
0: But yeah, I guess that's later after they're they're stranded. So yeah, this, this first part is just the sort of touristy stuff. They get to ride dolphins, which was extremely, more than anything, that felt like just a commercial. And also looked extremely annoying to the dolphins.
1: Yeah, so I mean, look, there's it, that whole scene bothered me, the bo- both scenes because you had Jesse riding an orca, he was yeah. riding a killer whale and the and the two girls, DJ and Stephanie riding the dolphins. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of a thing that's gone the way of the dodo now. There are still some places where you can swim with the dolphins, but they ask you very nicely not to paw all over them because yeah. it is painful yeah and
0: to, to be clear the, the girls aren't riding the dolphins like horses they're kind of like hanging onto their fins right like a, you, you don't look at it and say oh my god that, that dolphin's in horrible pain but it looks annoying yeah, and uncomfortable yeah
1: but Jesse is 100% yes. riding the orca he's got there's a rope around the orca's like front neck part up to where his fin is and then and Jesse's sitting on him
0: yeah you can watch the movie Blackfish if you want to learn all about the atrocities of SeaWorld and all of that but yeah it, it wasn't a, a great thing to see but then they they all end up going on this boat trip And that's where it sort of transitions into the second half of the story, like you were saying. Now, if you've seen the movie Open Water, it's a found footage horror film from the early 2000s about a couple that gets stranded in the middle of the ocean and eaten by sharks. And it very much has the same vibe of this because like we said, this is all being shot, you know, on cheap video because they're out on location. So when you're seeing this, the family, you know, it's the full house cast, no guide or expert or help or anything, and they go out on this boat. And it's filmed in a way that it looks like nothing but open water as far as the eye can see. It's horrifying. Like, I'm looking (laughs) at this going like, this is a nightmare scenario. Like, I would be terrified. And
1: then they say, oh, we've gone two and a half hours. We should be almost... Yeah. So two and a half hours away from land and...
0: They are very nonchalant.
1: To an island that, oops, turns out to be a potato chip on the map. So they've been going the wrong way the whole time. And so they're like, oh, no, what are we going to do? And then somebody sees an island off in the distance and they're like, well, let's just go over to that one and then we can kind of get help over there and recalibrate.
0: Yeah, so they find their own island. When when they land on an island that is seemingly uninhabited, I start counting the seconds until there will be a Gilligan's Island reference. And it takes about 22 seconds or so before (laughs) somebody says something about that. But yeah, this is going to be Lord of the Flies, right? This is we we found an island, you know, what are we going to do? Nobody, uh, you know, is anybody going to come help us? So this is when Stephanie does encounter a little Hawaiian boy by herself and thinks that he's one of the Mahoney.
1: Mahoney, yeah. So they all are arguing. Everybody's fighting and arguing and they're all mad at Danny and Danny's like, you know, I was just trying to plan this to have fun and everybody's yelling at everybody else and DJ is like, hey, cut it out. We are the Tanners. If we work together, we can make this island a really cool place to hang. Like, What? You're freaking stranded. No, but they're all like, you're right, DJ. Come on. And so then, you know, a couple of them go off to try to find water and a few more go off to find, th- you know, palm fronds or whatever to build a shelter. And Stephanie is off looking around for, you know, civilization and DJ's off looking around just for other civilization as well. And nobody finds anything. But they come back and Danny and, and Joey have built a nice shelter and Rebecca and Jesse find water. They find this like gorgeous waterfall and they, you know, take a jump off of it and it's really picturesque and beautiful.
0: Well, and Stephanie sees this child. But she sees this little boy, like you said, dressed in a grass skirt or whatever. They both startle each other and run in the opposite directions. So Stephanie comes running back, telling her sisters or whomever, I saw a menahuni, a menahuni. They don't believe her. But come on, Stephanie is old enough to understand, to to communicate the idea that she saw a person. Like, it's just the fact that they all think that they're, like, going to starve to death. And Stephanie has seen a human being and... Doesn't really make any attempt to like tell them that. Well, you know? she
1: did, but she is saying it like it's this magical creature, we, and everyone's just kind of not. Yeah, believing we just her. have to
0: buy into the fact that she believes so wholeheartedly that this is this Menahune fairy thing that it never crosses her mind that this might just be a person right. that they that she saw they see a plane fly by but the plane's too far away they go like hey hey save us but the plane flies by and they give up they go oh uh, he's he's never gonna see us everybody knows you spell out the word help with your clothes or with rocks (laughs) Or you make a smoke signal. Like, again, did they not read Lord of the Flies? Did they not see Castaway? Like, this is stranded on an island 101. I
1: mean, they also... So here's the thing. The reason that they're stranded is that when Danny tied up their boat, he didn't tie it up well. So they go to go back to the boat and it's floated out. To see. That's the
0: latest reason why they can't leave the island, yeah. Right?
1: That's the reason they're stuck on the island. So, I mean, I think they're sort of just figuring they'll settle in for the night and make a new attempt tomorrow when they've eaten something and slept and they're not so freaked out and scared.
0: Okay, I guess maybe that's that's what I'm not getting is to me, I am seeing this like in these movies where it's like they are stranded forever and they're just having this nonchalant sitcomy attitude about it. But, yeah, Like you said, they they sort of give up on on that plane or sort of resign themselves to we're going to be here for at least the night. And... That's basically when we get our first appearance of the the Hawaiian native, right?
1: Well, so they're all in the shelter that they've built, sitting around a fire. I feel like they're sharing, like, you know, happy moments or something. And then they hear these drums and like a like a holler, like a scream or some singing or something. And they're like, what is that? And so they go running off in the direction of, of hearing it. And everyone's like, wait, 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 don't go so fast. Because it's Stephanie who's like, it's the meta." Mene- It's a manahuni. And she goes running off into the dark. And everyone's like, wait, wait, wait. It's dark out there. And so they light little torches in their fire and they go running after her. And as they like break through the trees, all of these Hawaiian natives are like, rah.
0: Yes, this is a pretty cringy moment at first. I feel like they kind of recover from it pretty quickly but yeah this guy jumps in their face he's got the sort of like facial henna tattoo type thing he's... yeah
1: he's got the um, the same thing the Maori wear from New Zealand and he has like a like a New Zealand accent so yeah. he's got the Maori tattoos like if you're going to do the haka which is a, a New Zealand thing not necessarily a Hawaiian thing but it all sort of it's all kind of Polynesian in a way yes. and that's why they're sort of blending all of it together yeah. in in this celebration. I
0: could believe that given, you know, how sort of strongly rooted this is in Hawaii's tourism interests, that this is accurate to at least whatever like resort, you know, Sure, whatever
1: colonialist resort has exactly. decided to put on a
0: show. But yeah, the moment when this guy first jumps out is a little cringy because it, it just has this sort of ooga booga, you know, the natives from King Kong kind of right. vibe to it. But then they walk it back by him going like, haha, just kidding. We like. To to mess with tourists and we're not really going to like cook you in our cauldron or anything. No, just and it's like, on a come show.
1: on, we're putting on a show. You guys are the guests of honor and they like right. sweep them out onto the stage.
0: So once again, we get just like the Head of the Class Russia episode. We get what was obviously like a real concert event, right? right. That they filmed in front of these resort guests or whoever the yes, hell this is. because
1: everyone in the audience is very white. So it is 100% all resort guests. Yeah,
0: but it is just like you said. It is very funny how as this cast of characters from Full House is going like, what, what, what's happening? Oh, I guess we're not stranded after all. You hear this voice over like a public address system going, please welcome our new friends to join us on the stage. And it's like, well, what the hell? And you have to sort of piece it together that, okay, I guess in real life, if you were at this resort for this, like, you know, It drum was a John thing, Stamos
1: concert. Yeah, exactly.
0: Somebody went, hey, everybody, we've got a special. Special treat for you. Please welcome John Stamos and the cast of Full House. And yeah, the whole cast comes out and they're clapping and singing and stuff. And you know, we didn't mention the whole time there's this sort of running thing of uh, of Jesse and Becky are having Elvis issues in their marriage, right? right? Rebecca right. doesn't like Elvis enough. It's always a running thing for the whole length of the show that John Stamos's character is obsessed is with obsessed Elvis.
1: With Elvis. But so, like in real life, this is a John Stamos concert. Yeah. This is. He had a band and toured around, and in previous seasons they've had him with the Beach Boys already, and doing that kind of doing that kind of thing. So they've had those crossover episodes already kind of happen. This is in Hawaii a John Stamos concert that as a surprise to his audience he brought out the cast of Full House. That's what this is this wasn't a like resort putting on a sort of like tribal show and then being like oh by the way here's John Stamos. No no John Stamos's concert and he's like surprise all of my friends from Full House are also here and everyone's cheering and going crazy because it's so cute to have all the little girls in the full cast of Full House come out what I was getting hung up up on on this island was i was like man they went out for this little boat tour just like in gilligan's island and by the time night had fallen everyone had a change of clothes they had been in their bathing suits and their life preservers on the boat and now they all have shorts and a t-shirt and aren't wearing their bathing suits anymore
0: (laughs) yeah i mean yeah i i don't know it's the whole thing is just wild and like you said you're watching it just going like Okay. Like, I was having
1: some serious nostalgia, though, for Stephanie's bathing suit, because I 100% had that bathing suit. It was that pink, it's that pink bathing suit with the one strap down the back that had three or four bows on it, and it came in pink and blue, and every girl I knew had that bathing suit for like two years.
0: All right. Well, we get the nice bookends of I'm, you know, infatuated with Jesse's suit, and you like uh, Stephanie's bathing suit. Um, <laughs> So look, like like we said, you know, I mean, this is the end. Obviously, this is the triumphant conclusion. They weren't lost after all. Turns
1: out they were on the island that they had been looking for. They just ended up on the wrong side of it.
0: Yeah. And then we get the, the, you know, narration saying that the accommodations were provided by Northwest Airlines and Hilton Country Club. So I guess the one thing that we can track is that when we get to Perfect Strangers, for example, I was curious as to why they chose that episode as the season premiere, whereas this has a very clear, special episode sort of status, that at least... By going to Hawaii, we're sort of upping the ante and saying, like, all right, what can we do to begin, not just to begin the new season of Full House, but to begin this whole new chapter, the rise of TGIF, right? This is the very first thing where we'll take you to Hawaii, right? Right.
1: Well, Perfect Strangers is in season five. So they kind of have their whole shtick really nailed down the perfect strangers episode is a classic physical comedy larry lies to jennifer balky tries to convince him not to they get themselves in some shenanigans episode
0: yeah but that's why i mean we'll get to it when we get there but i i found it odd it doesn't matter if it's your 20th season you're still going to make that calculus of what do we want the season premiere to be and in that case it seemed a little random whereas i'm just saying with this one it feels like an event.
1: as an event but maybe they knew that maybe they aren't trying to have all of the shows be events if this one's if perfect strangers is kind of the stalwart ratings champion of the tgif lineup then maybe it didn't need to be maybe they also were trying not to outshine their spinoff true which came on just before it and we're going to talk about next family matters yes season one episode one
0: yes we got the very first episode ever of family matters
1: the mama who came to dinner
0: Yeah, so right off the bat, uh, we've got some personnel changes to discuss here. Family matters, of course, we've, we've talked about two or maybe even three times now, but this is the very first episode. We have a slightly different set and a different cast right yeah
1: well just the one so the youngest daughter judy well
0: there's a notable absence we'll get to also. yes that
1: too but the youngest daughter judy for this episode only this was a pilot episode like you said the set is different and the youngest daughter is played by a different girl she would be replaced for episodes two and beyond as i believe the house like the set is The house set starts in the second episode. That is the house that we know kind of up until they do the big change to the house later on.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I think a lot of times with these pilots, time would pass between when they shot the pilot and they would rejigger it a little bit after they picked it up. And as we'll see, make adjustments to the cast. And yeah, the set looks basically the same like it has that same sort of mahogany woodsy vibe but it definitely is more spread out and stagey I feel like the newer one once the series gets going just feels more like discrete rooms with walls and windows where this is more open
1: well it's the family room the living room itself is way more open the couch is further upstage where as we've known because we've talked about this in previous episodes normally the Winslow's couch is really kind of downstage like right up close to the camera and there's usually, you know, they're watching TV of some kind and that couch is also on the same sort of horizontal line as the front door yeah. and that's not the case in this set. That's the big difference. Like we both noticed kind of right away that the, the set was very different and then it was about after the first commercial break, we were sort of midway through that kind of second scene after the first commercial break and I realized there's no Urkel, and we should have Urkel.
0: Yeah, I wrote down about halfway through my notes, still no Urkel, exclamation point. And then, yeah, it kind of became clear to both of us, we were probably thinking separately, sitting next to each other, did we see Urkel in the opening intro, or was he and not we didn't. even there? He wasn't. Yeah, and then it starts to be clear, oh, they're not just being more... Restrained with their use of him. He is not in this show yet. This is a straight up family sitcom about the Winslows, and there is no wacky, nerdy neighbor at all.
1: Exactly. So, Urkel's first official appearance isn't until episode 12 of season one, Laura's first date. And he was brought on as sort of a minor character, figuring they would just kind of, you know, introduce him. And, it, you know, it was just maybe be for that episode or maybe a couple episodes because he was kind of funny and then it would go. He became such a fan favorite. Obviously, that didn't happen. He was retconned into in syndication in a teaser for episode four, season one, episode four, Rachel's first date. Mm -hmm. He In syndication, he's in a teaser for that episode, but he isn't actually, his first real appearance doesn't occur until the 12th episode. So yeah, he's not in the open. He's not a member of the cast. They haven't thought of him yet (laughs) at this
0: point. And it's an interesting glimpse, obviously, into this sort of alternate timeline of what could have been. I'll say I wish there could be a happy medium. You know, of course, what happens with Urkel is, you know, we it's the ultimate example of a character sort of taking over a show and being this punchline and being idiotic and annoying. But when you watch this one, it is such a down-the-middle family sitcom where you go like, yeah, I, I understand the impulse. They needed something else. Like they, they yeah. needed a little wackiness, a little. These characters are just a little too subdued and grounded maybe right. for a young audience that wants a little craziness. So, yeah, yeah it's so I of, mean,
1: the critics were like, so what's the difference between this and the Cosby show? Um, I'm bored. Kind of. That was the response to the original airing of Family Matters. And I was like, wow, OK. <laughs> yeah.
0: So let's get into what this actually actual episode is about, which is Carl's mom, the grandma, coming to live with
1: them. That's right. Mother Winslow, at this point, so Rachel, Harriet's sister, her husband has already died. She and little Richie are already living with them. So that was like one addition to the household that happens prior to the series even starting. And now, you know, Harriet and Carl are having this kind of argument because Harriet has said, no, your mother is coming to live with us. And Carl's like, you don't understand it's a, she's a different woman when you're visiting her for the yeah. holidays than she will be when she's living here and he is very concerned about just the way that she is kind of judgmental and takes over everything and thinks she's the boss of everything and he is really concerned about his mom coming to live with them and Harriet just keeps saying I like your mother you're being ridiculous you know you're it's fine whatever and then immediately the tables are turned and Harriet realizes, what have I done?
0: Yeah, well, and Carl really gets to strut his stuff in these first few scenes comedically. Again, this is a world with no Urkel, so where is the humor from this show going to come? It comes from Reginald Val Johnson doing this big toothy grin... Trying to sort of sublimate his rage, right? So much of this, maybe rage isn't even the right word, but so much of this is him putting on that big smile and going, like, Uh-huh. Yeah, I love it. Or this'll <laughs> be great, you know, and having to grin and bear it.
1: Right. You know, literally, grin yeah, and
0: bear he it. He does that move over and over again. And it's fun. And yeah, that whole extended first scene is him going, you know, she's she's gonna make me go on a diet, you know, just all, all funny little jokes about how control. His mom is. And yeah, you get the sense this is going to be a much more down to earth kind of conflict. The other thing I just want to observe, you know, you made the comparison to Cosby show and there's some obvious similarities there, but that's a show about a doctor and his family. Whereas this, it's got the full house vibe of where we're piling in more and more family members into this one house. Like you said, we already have a widowed sister, not to mention our three kids. And now we're bringing in the grandma. But what's interesting is Carl Winslow is a police officer you know, whereas Danny Tanner is a, is a, a, TV personality. And Harriet, at this point, I think is a homemaker. She has various jobs that come and go throughout the series. She's still an elevator operator, okay. isn't she? Well, there's a, there's an episode later where they make a big deal of her going back to work. So at some point okay. in the series, she's a homemaker. Look, the, the point I'm trying to make is that they're a more working class family than yes. the Tanners in terms of their income. You don't necessarily see that borne out in the look of their house because it's a TV show and all the houses are beautiful and gigantic. Of course. But... I think we're setting ourselves up for the possibility that the story and the sort of uh, the world that this takes place in is going to be more working class and a little bit less affluent, even yeah. though it's got a very similar premise of, for various reasons, we have an entire extended family under one roof.
1: Yes, I think, I think you've picked up on something that is exactly what they were trying to do to set them apart from shows like The Cosby Show or even Family Ties, you know, just not being that... like, straight-down-the-middle show about a family. What's the thing that's different here? Well, we've got a lot of people living in this one roof, under this one roof, so let's tell all of those stories. And the very first story is a little bit of growing pains because the grandmother slash mother is moving in. And she has this very strange backstory that I can't quite, like, timeline in my brain. So she talks about living in France and living in Syria and living in all these, like crazy places and working for princes and working for kings and knowing shaws and all of this. And then also when she's having a conversation with Carl, he's talking about how she raised five boys and was a stay-at-home mom. And I'm like... How did she live these two aspects of her life and that she's been so alone since her husband died and living alone by herself in her house? So I'm like, when did she travel the world and work whatever job it was that made her like Mr. Belvedere? And when did she raise these three boys and how long has her husband? I'm so confused about like her backstory.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'll be honest. I didn't think about it that much. But yeah, I I could not tell you what the story is with her. You do get the sense that she's just like, she's a cool lady. Like that's always the joke with her is that she's a little old granny. The casting is very much like she just looks like a little old lady. And then she always has something sassy to say or some life experience that you wouldn't have expected or something. But yes, I cannot reconcile how all that happened other than, you know, life is long and maybe she took... 10, 15 years off from traveling the world to raise her many kids. I don't know.
1: Yes, because it only takes 10 to 15 (laughs) years to raise five boys. So the... The crux of the episode, one of the main ways that Mother Winslow is kind of getting in the way and usurping the parental authority of Harriet and Carl is that Eddie wants to go to a party that isn't really a party. It's more like a movie marathon night at one of his friends' houses, and they're going to watch all of the Rockies. Because they're going to be on TV. Rambo's not Oh, not Rocky's. They're going to watch all the Rambos because they're going to be on TV. Yeah. Rocky just has
0: one guy getting beat up a lot. Rambo (laughs) has many people being killed, you know, in bloody fashion.
1: But because it's on TV, it's going to go from like 8 o'clock at night until 2 o'clock in the morning. And his curfew is at 10. So he can't go to the movie marathon because he has this curfew. I have had this same argument with my parents as a kid, wanting to go to see a midnight movie, or wanting to do the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and not being able to do so, because whatever it was started at midnight, and my curfew was midnight. So that was it. So I just didn't get to go. Even though it was good, clean fun, Yeah, I couldn't go. Well, and that's the same situation Eddie finds himself
0: yeah, in. Yeah, that's going to be part of their strategy is is emphasizing that it is good, clean fun. But at first, his strategy is doing chores on spec, right? right? He wants to just kind of like amass a lot of political capital That's right. here. He's so he's building
1: gonna, goodwill. <laughs> yeah,
0: so he's going to walk around volunteering to wash the car or do the drapes or whatever, you know, he's he's going to do all these chores and then of course when his parents say, you know, what's the catch or whatever, he explains this thing he wants to be able to do, and even when they say you can't, he's still like, oh, okay, I'm still going to do these chores and kind of hope for the best, and then as the, as the grandma comes in, you know, she's going to help him try to sort of get allowed to do this.
1: Right, and she is unsuccessful, and in fact, just really upsets Carl and Harriet, and they basically decide they need to have a sit down with her and carl in particular needs to have a sit down with his mother and say you know that it's not okay you are not the parent here and we have rules for a reason and you don't get to decide because
0: because the grandma you know when eddie tells her privately like ah this is the thing going on with my parents they won't let me stay out to watch the rambo thing she goes rambo doesn't even blow anyone up until after 10 you know so again she's very much on his side so yeah at the dinner table like i said her strategy is like oh i get it you won't let him go because there's gonna be all kinds of drugs there and they're like no no it's it's just movies but yeah like you said they're still like no it doesn't matter if there's not drugs his curfew is what it is he can't go and they tell her to butt out and that's all the one big scene right with carl and the mom
1: right and i mean Mother Winslow realizes that she has been in the wrong with the way that she's been criticizing, you know, what, what time dinner is going to be served and criticizing the cooking that, you know, the food that's coming out that harriet has spent all her you it's know a big day thing in
0: sitcoms that they don't like meatloaf like you ever know that's always a joke oh meatloaf again and i never got it's a that. big
1: thing it's, it's a big thing in my life you, you yeah, and i have had this conversation enough. you're like i'm gonna make meatloaf i'm like gross nobody wants hamburger with a bunch of ketchup crystallized on top yuck Anyway, so um, Carl and Mother Winslow are having this conversation, and they do end up coming around to Eddie does get to go to this party. He does get to go to this movie marathon because – it it really isn't that big of a deal. Yeah. And if you're gonna make an exception, you know, if you're gonna win capital on the other side of it with like with your kid winning the political capital going that way, this is the time to say yes. Because there are gonna be times where you're gonna say no.
0: Yeah, and this is another one of those scenarios, kinda like how we talked about the Ross and Rachel breakup thing where everything is calibrated just so so that our our sympathies lie in exactly the right place. Like, yes, this is a situation in which What he's asking to do will be just transgressive enough to turn off the parents at first, but then will be, you know, safe and wholesome enough for them to turn around on it. Because the compromise that Carl reaches with his mother is he says, Mom, you will not be in charge anymore. You can be an advisor, Right, Right. and that kind of she kind of goes along with that. She says, "Okay, well, in that case, I will advise you to let the kid go."
1: As an advisor, this is a win that you can get.
0: (laughs) Yeah, let the kid go to the movie thing, and that's basically. That's Carl's sort of olive branch is to go like, well, you know what? All right. Like, if you recognize my authority as the head of the household or one of the heads of the household, then I will, you know, I will admit that it's really not a big deal and let him go to the movie thing.
1: And she says, and I will go and have a slice of that meatloaf. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. And uh look, just like we said with perfect strangers when we watch that, the one thing I just wanna emphasize about these Miller Boyette shows is they look so good. Like just literally the way the light falls on these actors faces is just a cut above a lot of the the sitcoms at at this time. Yeah. And it just I
1: really dig this house and I dig it always yeah. because of that like olive green sort of I don't know if it's the wallpaper or the paint or whatever it is, but they have this kind of like the theme in their house is this sort of like olivey green, kind of sagey color that is really just pleasing that normally you don't see in a lot of sitcom homes especially around this time right it's very you know mauve and well, cream yeah. and this doesn't have that
0: the way that this one ends is Harriet and the mom are singing oh right Ra- and piano. Rachel's playing yeah, yeah and Rachel is playing so it's the three women singing he's got the whole world in his hands oh yeah so you right. get that vaguely religious sort of christian thing going on and then once carl has wrapped up his father son talk with eddie he's like well i better get downstairs and he just comes downstairs and just so like confidently just joins in that chorus with his booming baritone voice and you do get that sense I'm sorry if this is stereotypical but like the black family at church where just everyone loves to sing those songs you know and it just like it really has that vibe yeah
1: well and what I was kind of pulling away from it was just the that music has kind of been at the heart of so many of the episodes of family matters that we've watched you know we had that first one where it was like bobby brown and janet jackson kind of name checked Uh, and also we were listening to there's always some i mean there's just it just seems like music is very much a part of this show
0: yeah no exactly i didn't even think about that but yeah before we got all the references to janet jackson and bobby brown we get the music of god right (laughs) we'll start with him all right moving on to perfect strangers
1: good skates
0: Yeah, so we've talked about Perfect Strangers in our camping episode and in our Snowden for Christmas episode. This is the show, not necessarily the best show, but for me, it is the biggest gap between what I thought about it prior to our podcast and my experience of having watched it, where, like I said twice before, I won't belabor it, but I turned up my nose at this my whole life thinking that it was dopey, mildly problematic, and just just didn't have time for it. And yeah, now every time we watch it, I love it. I think this Mark Lynn Baker guy is hilarious. It doesn't bother me that much that Bronson Pinchot is doing some weird, you know, accent thing. And just the whole comic strip style of it that it's always just the two of them and it's this nice mix of the character folly stuff because it's always marklin baker learning his little lesson and his foibles kind of getting in the way and slapstick it's always them in a sleeping bag tumbling down a mountain or falling through quicksand or or who knows what and it's really fun
1: yep so this episode um once again we have larry getting jealous that Jennifer, his girlfriend, might be somewhat interested in this other guy, even though she's not at all. But the girls are raising money for Big Brother's organization and their flight attendants. And one of their flight attendant co-workers is a guy named Gene. And he is the one who raises the most money always. And he is very good looking. And he comes in and he's like, hey, guys, good to meet you. Oh, yeah. And Larry is just like, oh, my God, this guy is so attractive. I've got to do something so that Jennifer." won't pay attention to him and will pay attention to me.
0: Yeah. So yeah, you said a mouthful there. First of all, his name's Grant, I think. Oh, is Not it Grant? I, it was uh, I mean, that, that's a minor point. But uh, yeah, it's, it's clear now that that Larry's central character flaw is that he must be at the center of every situation, yeah, right? Jennifer's
1: he, universe has to revolve around him in every way.
0: Yeah, exactly. I didn't even think of it as being, you know, vis-a-vis the girlfriend, but I guess in every in every case so far, that that's sort of the case. Yeah, he just, he cannot be, you know, a part of the plan or a part of the scene. He has to be in the lead at the center of every. Everything and that you know and of course he never has the competence to to follow through on that and well, so because
1: he always sets himself up to fail by yeah. saying he's going to do some ridiculous thing like my name was wheels Appleton right. back when I lived in Wisconsin because I'm the best roller skater
0: there ever was right just like with the camping episode he always has to fabricate an expertise or a That's facility right. that he has with this thing
1: which now we're in season five and Balky knows this about him and so when we get the scene on the couch when Balky's trying to be like you know hey what are we gonna do how's this gonna roll and Larry comes clean that this is a lie Balky's just like has this ever worked for you before cousin Every single time you do this, it fails miserably. So maybe you should just tell the truth. And then he tells a little funny anecdote about the little sprites that...
0: You well, know. I was just going to say, if Larry's solution to everything is to lie, it's kind of funny that it's taken five seasons for Balky to come up with this mythology about the Maposian Furies, right? Like the Fib <laughs> Furies. The
1: Fib Furies. Well, but it's more just like Cousin. Why do you always do this? Like we now have a person that is like screaming, like we, the audience, are in the show yeah. live. He's well, like, "Don't do this. Abort this plan. Tell the truth." And Larry's like, "Absolutely not."
0: Yeah, he explains his reasoning. What he says is, "What was I supposed to do? Let Grant raise all that money and impress Jennifer like that?" Like that is as far as the reasoning goes with him. Is another person cannot succeed
1: that's right and Balky's like I know that there is a flaw in your logic but I cannot put my finger on it yeah and so that's how they leave it. So they're like, okay, we're going to go on this stupid plan because neither one of them can, he, you know, Larry's not going to give up his dumb lie because he's so insecure, but also blustery. And Balky is just like, I can't, I don't even know what the hell is wrong with you. <laughs> yeah.
0: And the plan in this case is simply to participate in the roller-thon, right? This is the marathon. Now we should also add this whole scenario gives plenty of opportunities for our Balky Mal propisms right he doesn't understand the difference between a marathon and a telethon he doesn't understand the difference between big brothers which is the organization that they're doing all this for and the blues brothers which is not, people nowadays might not remember is an old snl thing and uh yeah so every step of the way we're getting all of his usual confusion but story-wise what's happening is larry is saying they call me Wheels, first of all. They get lots of humor from that. Just the idea that my name, where I come from, was Wheels Appleton or whatever. That's right. So when Balky, of course, being himself and always being completely forthright about all of his shortcomings is like, well, gee, I don't really know how to skate. The girls, Jennifer and, and Balky's girlfriend go like, oh, Wheels can teach you. Wheels would you teach Balky how to roller skate? And of course, Balky is like, would you wheels? And yeah, and that's that's the plan.
1: And he goes, well, so this was the fun bit of writing that I liked, because Balky says, would you wheels? And Larry goes, why not? Mm. So it was like the whoa, whoa, whoa.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, usual MO, we cut to commercial, come back, and the two of them are wearing roller skates this is before the rise of rollerblades these are old-timey roller skates and i am like Putting down the pen, sitting back, and just getting ready for that perfect stranger's silliness.
1: That's right. So first we have the scene on the couch where Larry comes clean to Balky, and then they just decide, you know what? The, the solution, the way around this, is we never take these skates off. It can't be that hard to learn. So then we get, of course, the silliness of them trying to stand up off the couch and then try to start moving, and they're just kind of walking yeah, in the skates. Yeah, they're doing
0: that thing everyone tries when they first try to skate, of like, what if I just walk with the skates on? And take (laughs)
1: tiny little steps, but don't roll at all. And so they do that. And then... They get to the door and Larry's like, all right, now all we need is a little speed. And so he pushes Balky and Balky glides into the kitchen.
0: Hilarious. Just the the shots of them just sailing across the living room, just having pushed each other are just so funny to me.
1: Yes. This this will pale in comparison though to the next scene when we come back from commercial break where, where it's the next day and they're at their office, which is now, you know, in an earlier episode, we were like, oh, it's weird. They're not working at the paper. They're working at this little store. They're now solidly working at the Chicago Chronicle. They work Mm -hmm. at the paper. And all of the desks in that kind of um, newsroomy downstairs area where they work have been all cleared out because this is going to be a full roller skating scene. It's like set up almost like a roller rink, but it's their office. And they are in the roller skates and we get this amazing scene of Larry just trying to get from the one desk like the research table back to his desk where the phone is ringing and he just he tries to do it and he tries to move his legs and he skates backwards by accident and he tries to walk and he starts slipping
0: i was wondering like how good a skater did he have to be to skate badly like this. Like, I is was this... thinking
1: the same thing. He had to, because he was able to do all of the like really wild legs out slipping, yes. moving and his hands backwards. like a windmill and then stopping like uh-huh. to be able to have control. While you're looking like you're out of control, he has to. Yeah, it's like some practice,
0: Harlem Globetrotters kind of thing. Where yeah, it's like this studied thing so that you can make it look spontaneous and weird and like you're flailing around or whatever. Yeah, it's very funny. And then the sort of second half of that is Balky comes in and now gliding like a
1: figure skater. Yeah,
0: and it's funny because Bronson Pinchot has that kind of body and with the hair and everything like. He looks like someone who would be out of that Blades of Glory movie, you know, about the figure skaters. And so, yeah, he's gliding around. And so the joke is you know, Larry hasn't taken to it at all. And Balky has, since we've last seen him become a master figure skater.
1: He's so good at the roller skating. He's gliding, he's doing turns, he's up on one leg, he's doing like arabesques and all sorts of things. And his advice to wheels is the reason that he's that Larry's not able to do that is that he's it's because the Furies are holding him back. If he comes clean and tells the truth, then skating is as easy as he says it is, and it will be easy for him, but he has to tell the truth. Right.
0: We should also mention just the funny coincidence having covered Green Acres in our last episodes that the name of the Fib Furies are Ava, Jaja, and Marta.
1: That's right. right.
0: Now, is there a third Gabor sister named Marta? Is that the joke there, or did they just make that one up? Uh,
1: not that I know of. Maybe they did just make that one up.
0: So that scene happens. It's amazing. And then we get the proper roller skating showdown, right? Where Larry, you know, the the whole cast, Larry Balky and their girlfriends show up at this roller rink. And of course, Larry goes, well, not a professional rink, but I guess it'll have to do, you know, (laughs) just putting on airs from the beginning.
1: Always,
0: Yeah. This whole event reminds me of the movie, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? It's this Jane Fonda movie, which takes place during the depression where they would have these dehumanizing dance marathons where they would just make people dance for like 72 hours hours in a row just to see like a sheer contest of stamina, yes. you know, and that's, that's kind of what this is like. Like we get the impression that hours are passing, right? And they're just roller skating yes. and it's skating.
1: 10 hours. That's yeah. what it says on the clock. And so we see that it's a 10 hour roller skateathon, a thon and they're just going to keep going and keep going and you raise the most money based on how long you stay in. And so Larry is on track to raise the most money if he's able to last the whole time. But of course, he's not a very graceful skater. So it's costing him a lot of effort. So he's exhausted. So we get great, a great, you know, couple of scenes where he is just sort of like standing there falling asleep on his feet and Balky's pushing him around the rink so he can stay on his on his feet and in the a-thon, the roller a-thon or whatever. And then there's one where he's like crouched down kind of in a fetal position and Balgi's pushing him along on his skates like that as well. He's still on his feet on his skates, but he's like all curled up into a little ball. And every time we get one of them going around the rink, then we get that guy Grant coming in and doing like a tour on skates in front of them as they go past the girls.
0: Yeah, now we're also supposed to understand that Larry has raised the most money for the telethon, right? How did that happen?
1: Well, he got sponsors, and so the sponsors, it's based on how long you stay in. So the sponsors will donate their total amount of money if you stay in all 10 hours, or a portion thereof if you stay in five hours, six hours, seven hours, right? Like, depending on how many hours you stay in, that's how. So he is on track to have the most money, but in order to have order for that to be the truth he's got to stay in all 10 hours right
0: which he does which he does because Balgi
1: is pushing him around yeah
0: (laughs) so he gets this sort of tentative victory you know and the girlfriends are impressed just as he wanted them to be and it seems like everything is going great and then there's just this final challenge or this final thing where Grant is going to skate and jump over Four or five barrels?
1: Right. So the... Tournament organizer, the uh, skate-a-thon organizer is like, We've had a last-minute challenge from one of our sponsors. 500 extra dollars to the cause if anyone can jump over these barrels. And everyone's like, Oh man, wow. And Larry's like, Yeah, it's way too, you know, we've been on our feet way too long. I would totally do it, but oh, it's been 10 hours. And Grant's like, I still have the energy. And off he goes and does this like gorgeous leap over four or five of these. Uh, like oh, they're
0: big. They're they look they're like, like big mats. They're foam. like yeah. yeah. They're like yeah. They're foam. like gym equipment.
1: Right. They're like rolled up mats. Yes. That they're are not there. barrels
0: that you would put anything in. But. Marklin Baker's face watching this grand character do the stunt is amazing. He's drenched in sweat, looking all like pale and sick, and just the sheer horror and desperation (laughs) when you see him going like, this cannot stand. He's (laughs) like, like, I "I I,
1: had won. (laughs) Yeah,
0: like, I cannot allow this to happen. What can I possibly do? And so, of course, he says... Add another barrel. I will do that barrel jump and then some. And when they question him on it, he says, I'm from Wisconsin, the barrel jumping state. (laughs)
1: Oh, he always has something it's, ridiculous yeah, to say. He's
0: physically incapable of resisting the urge to dominate the situation. Yeah. It's like watching like a, a gambling addict to try to not go to the slot machine and they can't do it.
1: Yes, it's the thing with Marty McFly where if you call him chicken, he yeah. has to take the bet.
0: Yeah, exactly. But with Larry, no one needs to call him chicken. All He, needs, he just needs to see somebody else excelling at something. At
1: something in front of his girlfriend. Yeah.
0: Uh, so, of course he just totally wipes out and he ends up sort of sliding over the barrels the way like when you have to put your tray of stuff through the x-ray machine at the airport and so you just have to slide it over that little series of cylinders that's that's pretty much what he does with (laughs) himself. he rolls
1: over them yes he takes a, a forward leap arms out and dives on top of them
0: yeah and so you know when all is said and done they have this conversation you know you were saying how this has been five seasons of balky having to deal with this with larry i was kind of thinking that same thing with jennifer the girlfriend when she tells him grant is happily married you were jealous for no reason as he's sort of coming clean of oh i just wanted to impress you i just you know i didn't want you thinking that grant was better than me and i just got to think how many times has this poor woman had this conversation with this grown-ass man where she's like No, Larry, you didn't have to try to scale Kilimanjaro in three (laughs) hours just to impress me.
1: Yeah. I mean, basically every week she has this conversation with him. He never learns his lesson. It is maddening.
0: Yeah. We get a little sense that Balky's girlfriend, uh, she's she's feeling kind of saucy at the end. Like, she she says something like, come on to my, come come to my roller derby or something. She's like,
1: why don't you come upstairs tomorrow? Because they've been, you know, out all night doing this, you know, they need to sleep doing this 10-hour-long uh, marathon skating thing. So she goes, why don't you come up tomorrow and we can play roller derby? Right. And Balky's like, ooh. Yeah.
0: And you get the sense that jennifer is going to take her nightly ibuprofen and just you know try to deal with this guy
1: (laughs) get away from him so
0: yeah you know like i was saying at first i thought that story wise this just seemed a little random for the season premiere like oh you know larry and balky join a telethon to to raise money and no, but i think it's the
1: skates exactly the thing
0: having talked through it now i realize no it's just that with all of that you <laughs> perfect strangers silliness and slapstick this was just one of the really good ones and so they decided to put it first
1: yeah we are we aren't gonna trap them in a sleeping bag this time we're gonna put them on skates and let's see what wacky shenanigans they can get into that way
0: yeah and again i just love it for that synthesis of like you know this is not patty choyevsky level writing but it's like that the human foibles and the slapstick stuff go hand in hand oh absolutely It's not just, you know, people falling down and and getting hurt, and it's not just the the character making a mistake and learning the lesson. They're, like, inextricably tied. Right. Moving on to the new and (laughs) completely unknown to us prior to this uh, week, sitcom Free Spirit.
1: This is the pilot, and we get baby Allison Hannigan. We get another little kid that I've definitely seen as a little kid in shows in the 80s and 90s, and Corinne Borer. She is definitely a character actress or an actress that we've seen in things. Oh, yes.
0: She was a ubiquitous, she was one of these, like Jennifer Aniston before Friends. She was just floating around. She was in Herman's head. She was in, Yeah, you, you, just looking at her IMDb page a few minutes ago, I mean, it goes on and on. And you see, like, one episode, one episode, one episode... Ten episodes, one episode, one episode, 12 episodes. You know, it's all these guest spots and then occasionally a show that goes for a season and doesn't take or whatever. She was a working actress in the 80s. Very familiar face to me. But let's talk about the thing behind the scenes that makes this show different from all the others. This isn't a Miller Boyette production right no. we talked about that with just the 10 of us how they were a little bit of the like the Gambini crime Lords of the <laughs> ABC uh, family sitcom they just ran you out of town right
1: that's right well so they had a deal with ABC that they would be these like mega producers of a lot of their shows and so one of the shows that they did not produce however is growing pains and so just the 10, o- ten of us was a spin-off of growing pains and growing Pains was a major ratings hit. So they figured, okay, just the 10 of us, that'll be another new show that will be connected to a ratings juggernaut that's already here on this channel that we can put on the Friday night lineup as part of the normal TGIF lineup. So you have Family Matters, which is a spinoff of Perfect Strangers, and both of those are airing in the Friday night lineup. And then you have just the 10 of us spinoff of Growing Pains just the 10 of us is going to be on TGIF but growing pains is going to keep its sort of place on the you know Tuesday or Wednesday whenever it normally aired and that was the the plan Well, they also wanted to do a little teaser. And that's why this very first episode of TGIF, we have this random episode of a show that didn't even last a full season. This show was canceled in January of 1990. This is the end of September, 1989. So this show filmed 14 episodes, aired 13 and was canceled before mid-season replacements in January.
0: And one of the reasons for that might be that it is terrible, right? It is is pretty bad a very bad show in my opinion and the reason is because it's joyless right this is another one of the family plus blank shows right. we talk about all the time this is this has always been a thing in sitcoms but definitely in the 80s you have a basically standard nuclear family plus Maybe it's an alien. Maybe it's a robot. Maybe it's an Italian boxer guy who's going to be your housekeeper. (laughs) Sometimes it can be fantastical and whimsical. Sometimes it's a little more down to earth. But what happens when we take a family and add in this extra thing? And so in this case, it's a witch, kind of like bewitched and just yeah the whole premise seems assembled from other shows which in itself would be fine if there was just some spark of creativity and fun but you just get the sense that not a single person in front of or behind the camera on this show had any Interest in making a, a show about a witch and a family, like just nobody seems excited about it. All of the sort of gags and jokes just seem very rote and, you know, unimaginative. And, uh, yeah, the whole thing just seems like, like really slapdash and, and like no one was trying.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, I think your point about that just sort of bears itself out. The show never gained a following. It was never very good. It always had horrible ratings and nobody liked it. It was basically unwatchable. And that's a bummer, right? Because it is kind of a good idea. The issue that you mentioned is that it's joyless. But the other issue that I think that it has is that there is no, there's no heart. There's no reason for any of these things happening. The whole reason that she's there in the first place is that the youngest boy, who I also recognize from a bunch of different shows, he has wished for her because he is in this situation like uh, young Ben was in that Growing Pains episode we watched, where everybody is too busy to pay attention to his kid problems. Because it's not just a normal nuclear family. This is a divorced dad who is raising his three kids while running a law practice out of his home and They had just moved to a new town. So there's all sorts of things and places we could go and ways we could instill heart in this show, but it isn't there.
0: First of all, before we even get to the story, similar to the observation we made about the Home Improvement episode that was made right around the same time horrible time for hair on television. There are three <laughs> male members of this family. Every one of them is sporting a mullet longer than the last. The older son... He looks a lot like Brad from Home Improvement. The older son is... just taller. Is, yes, the older brother from Home Improvement on steroids. He looks a little bit like when Anthony Michael Hall kind of got a little bit beefier in his later yes. 80s movies like Can't Buy Me Love. But the style and stuff are kind of funky that's all i'm trying to say but getting into the premise of the show like you said of course a fantastical thing like this is going to start with some sort of oh somebody made a wish or something happens it doesn't need to be realistic or even original or creative but you don't want it to be so thrown together that it's like you feel stupid if you buy into it you know like this whole thing has the vibe of like we spent so little time and effort coming up with this that it's it's like if i were if i were a kid tuning into this i would pick up on it and feel, like, kind of dumb if I tried to even get into this story, you Well, know? what
1: I was annoyed with, it was more just, it's like, they kept leaving things unsaid. They have this whole scene where, you know, she gets wished for, she arrives, she explains to the youngest son that she's here because he wished for her, and that she's only here to do the one thing that he asked for, which was teach him how to bowl. Well, if that's the case, then why does she need... To meet the whole rest of the family. But that's not and the wish that she responds
0: the... to. He says, I wish someone in this stupid house had time for me, and that's the wish that makes her come.
1: Right. But then immediately she explains that she's only here to teach him how to bowl. Okay. So that and that's it. And then she's gone after this bowling thing. Because that's the deal—is that that's all she's here for? And so it's like, well, then why does she need to meet the family? Why are they setting it up if, he, if if she's only here to teach him how to bowl because he's feeling left out with his family? Then she has no reason to get involved with anybody else or anything else, right? But then they do, and then they inter- they like kind of set her up as oh, she must have applied for the role of being the housekeeper, and it's like her magic only works some of the time, and. I, There's just too many things that they're leaving unsaid. Every time there's thunder outside the window, she talks back to it like that's her bosses from somewhere else talking to her. But we don't understand any of that. It's like what Sabrina did, well, and again, Sabrina, different IP, whole lore, whole history, whatever, but like what Sabrina did in their first episode of setting up all the different things, very easy to understand. Don't leave anything unsaid. Still doing it in 30 minutes so we know what's going on. This show, forget about it.
0: Yeah, no, again, it doesn't, you know, it can be as simple as little Tom Hanks making the wish on the the thing in big or, you know, little uh Jennifer Garner going into the closet and 13 going on 30. But like there just needs to be a little bit of of logic to it or just some sort of like even if it's an emotional logic. But what happens in this is the kid gets upset, like he fights with his brother and he goes, like I said, I wish someone had time for me. And then this lady appears with all the cheesy special effects and stuff. And yeah, there's just not any effort to even break down that one thing that he said caused her to come and then you know she kind of makes the joke oh well you know my my number came up or whatever again like you can watch you know bill and ted or something it's fine to make jokes about the way that this supernatural stuff works But you still can think the joke through, you know. And again, there's—it's just so slapdash.
1: Yeah. And And then they immediately try to get her in, like a will they, won't they, with the dad, and set all that up. And it's just too much. It's too much. If it is—if it is the right amount of stuff, they needed better writers.
0: Yeah. The reason, I guess, why she has to sort of pose as their housekeeper and everything is just that the dad walks in. And again, look. At this point, we're piling on here. It's clear we don't like this show. But in terms of people behaving in a way that no human being has ever behaved, you know, this woman, right? She's a grown woman. Her name is Winnie Goodwin, I think. So she first appears to this little boy in his bedroom, right? The dad walks into the room and... C is this grown-ass woman. She sort of looks like a Phoebe Buffet type. She's kind yes. of dressed with a hippy-dippy, you know, skirt Long and everything. Skirt,
1: lots of layers on top, like yeah, a vest. and yeah. Than,
0: grown-ass you know, woman, 25, 30-year-old woman. He's confused but not alarmed at the fact that this woman is in his house, in his son's bedroom. And that sitcom acting when we need to communicate to you, the audience that we are making this up and lying but somehow the other character in the scene is gonna not pick up on it you know what i mean like the witch and the little boy are going uh she's the uh housekeeper that's it that's what she's doing she's a yeah! i let her in that's the ticket and the dad is just like oh okay well uh let me see your references And that made me nostalgic for a time when you could just hand somebody a paper, like a printed out piece of paper, and that was like proof of anything. Those were,
1: yeah, those were your references that were printed on this piece of paper. And the dad's like, well, they're all from out of state. And she was like, you have no idea.
0: Yeah. So that's, but that's it, right? I guess that's just to explain her presence there, she says, you know, I'm the housekeeper because I guess kind of like a Melissa and Joey situation, they're in the market for a Charles in Charge type figure.
1: Right. The dad says, oh, did you see my ad? Did you respond to the ad? And that's how the son is like, oh, right, that's how we're going to get out of this. We're going to say, yeah, I let her in. She's here applying for the housekeeper position. So the dad kind of auto assumes that she must be there for that reason. And then they just kind of play into it. And then he's like okay well we'll give you a trial basis let me show you to the guest room where you'll be staying and then the next scene is the next morning where she meets the other two kids the older two kids and the youngest Child is like, oh yeah, the new housekeeper, she's a real witch. And they're like, oh, don't say that. That's so mean and whatever. And then she shows up and it's like, no, really. After having this whole conversation of, I'm only here to help you with bowling. I'm only staying that long. And she tells him at the in that first conversation that nobody else but him can know. Now all that's gone out the window. Scene number two the other kids can know and immediately she's going to like make ticket concert tickets appear and make them happy.
0: Well, yeah, of course the crux of this show is going to be fun, practical, special effects with the witchiness, right? Right. That the
1: kids are going to know about the witch thing, but the, The dad is not.
0: Yes, again, sort of like a Mary Poppins vibe. So, yeah, the special effects for this kind of thing and the general approach hasn't changed much since the days of Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie. This is, you know, we talked about this with Clarissa. This is something that in you know before the rise of affordable cgi especially if you were doing things in front of a live audience there was something fun you know you see it in saved by the bell all the time too just about doing these kinds of live special effects even if it is as simple as we're going to turn off the camera and move something and then turn the camera back on again just the fact that they're doing it at all in this case it's stuff like having live hens inside the kitchen cabinets for when she makes eggs having tickets pop out of the toaster where you're you're just supposed to get a chuckle out of the fact like ah they did that huh
1: yeah and that and that's it a couple of visual gags the dad is like, oh, remember, you're just here on a probationary basis. And she's like, well, the kids are going to go to this concert. And he's like, no, they aren't. And she goes, well, why don't I, you know, see if I can get a ticket for you, too? And then, bing, another ticket pops out of the toaster, but the dad doesn't see it. And then off they, the, kid, yeah. the kids and the dad um, are going to go to the concert. The youngest kid is going to stay home and learn how to bowl.
0: Yeah. And also, just again, the, the rapport between the dad... And this witch character is odd. Like you said, there's clearly a will-they-won't-they romance that they're seeding for the future. But what we initially get... Again, I go back to that first dad in Charles in Charge, because it's like you see the holdover from a different time where the norm would be that the dad is a true authority figure, you know, a little bit less so maybe than we think of it now. And so he's got this sternness to him as a dad and as a employer for this witch character. But they also, again, like the Charles in Charge guy, they want a little goofiness and silliness. And I think this actor doesn't quite know how to land that plane. And I, think he's not somebody with the natural gifts like we always say about Michael J. Fox or you know a Dan Levy or somebody who can yes I can be antagonistic and likable and too cool for the room and arrogant but also stupid and fun all at the same time and I'm going to sell it and you're going to love me he's just there just kind of not knowing what to do with this inconsistent character
1: right and that's exactly it because in that next scene she reads him the riot act and does that whole you know Maria from um, sound of Music routine and says, well, you know, he says to her, I don't need another kid in this house. I already have right. three. And she's like, yes, you do. You need to find the kid in you. Yes, and turns he's going to walk
0: out. He's going to fire her. Basically, yeah. there's there's the scene that I was talking about where he sets down what your job is going to be. And then, yeah, a couple scenes later he fires her primarily because the, the magic concert tickets she gave them were fake. Right. Right. And they they turned out to be counterfeit tickets, which is kind of funny. You have enough magic to make concert tickets, but not to make concert tickets that will work at the thing. You can make a living hen, right. of flesh and blood that can lay eggs, but your concert <laughs> tickets can't pass the muster of the 1989 I mean, security.
1: Maybe she was just doing it really quickly. And they were, uh, and, and her magic got in touch with the wrong um, scalpers wrong yeah. ticket scalper
0: but yeah he calls her into his office and is like you're fired he says the thing that you just said I already have three kids I don't need a fourth and then she goes on this whole thing that is just the most unearned out of left field like we took this from the you know trope playbook but forgot to put in all the antecedent stuff to right. make it make sense <laughs> Where
1: the kids like her or care any- yeah. Yeah, at all like,
0: her. She just straight up is like, you need to look within yourself, buddy, because these kids need a father and you are too busy with your work to spend time with them. And you're watching this going like, who the fuck are you? You don't know anything <laughs> about any of them. Like, it, it, it is just like the, the, the charges do not stick.
1: Right. Like, if you want us to suspend disbelief, we will do that. And, you know, you and I, we... And Enjoy suspending disbelief for these types of shows, but this one just asks everyone to go a, a little too far in suspending their disbelief, and so it doesn't. There is no payoff, like you said. The none of the scenes where she was building that rapport with the kids exist, except a little bit with the youngest one because they have the bowling scene. Yeah, but even so. Even the kid isn't sold on... The youngest kid isn't sold on her because every time he has success in bowling, it's because she's staring at the pins and doing something with her fingers. And he's like, you're making that happen. I know I'm not learning how to bowl. And she's insisting he's learned how to bowl and he's going to be fine and she's not doing any magic. But the way it's shot and the way she's holding her hand and staring so intently, she's 100% doing magic. Yeah,
0: no, we just take her word for it at the end when she's like... Like, I could have done magic, but I didn't. I let you do it for yourself. <laughs> yeah, it's just such an unforced error because it wouldn't have taken any more money or time or anything. Like, if you want to establish that this dad is absent from the kids' lives or whatever those problems are, like... You can do that. It is just a matter of effort, like of just taking the time. And again, the same thing goes with the supernatural stuff. Like, if you want to have her there to respond to the kid's wish, fine. But there just needs to be something more to it than the kid randomly said, I wish someone would pay attention to me. And she came from the heavens. And again, I say, like, it's the cynicism that... It's like the show is saying to us, like, just watch it, all right? Just watch it. What yeah. the hell do you care, dummies? <laughs> you
1: know, you don't know any better. Yeah. What I would love to do is watch a few more episodes and see if we can see the burgeoning Alison Hannigan because uh, I think that, I mean, to me, she's the most interesting one of all of these characters just because I know that she goes on to have this whole other career and I think it would be really fun to see what she did on this little show that, you know, was... A kind of half a season
0: and she's the only one without a mullet so she got my <laughs> vote just for that
1: that's right she's wearing um lily in how i met your mother's hair from around season four when she gets it cut short and dyes it brown Interesting. that's the hair she's got in this show
0: yeah but less voluminous like i said <laughs> um but yeah so i don't know looking back on this Again, like, what can we say? This was an interesting exercise to sort of travel back to September 1989. But I don't know. I mean, the, you know, the, the sort of advent or at least, you know, the sort of continued uh, proliferation of that, you know, let's go to Hawaii kind of thing as a, as a season premiere is sort of, it's, it's interesting to track that. And it's super interesting to see how different family matters was. But, I'll say this, to me, the the biggest takeaway is Miller and Boyette are heroes and i used to associate them as you know they're they're just a bunch of cheese balls and all their shows are really sappy and that's true but seeing this free spirit one makes me go like yeah we need to stick with the m and b boys they know what they're doing (laughs)
1: they know what they're doing look i am bummed that we didn't get a just the 10 of us because as you know i'm a fan of just the 10 of us and all those funny girls and all the wild little shenanigans they get up to so i also kind of have had a really strong memory of watching that Full House episode. I I mean, I'm sure that we saw it in, I'm sure I watched this, you know, there would be no reason for me not to have at some random point in September. I grew up in Florida, we started school in July. So it was this was definitely like, wasn't even sort of like back to school time. I had already been in school for over a month, almost three months at this point, right? And so yeah, this definitely would have been part of my Friday night routine. And so I, I had that kind of vague memory of definitely watching at least that episode of, of Full House. I don't really remember the the other two episodes, Perfect Strangers and Family Matters. I definitely had completely forgotten about even the existence of, this sh- of the last show, Free Spirit. So yeah, I was just sort of Living in the nostalgia of the, oh, this moment in time, it made me want to go and watch TV commercials from that same era, which we then turned, we turned some of those on after we watched the shows. And it was wild to me how much I remember every one of these TV commercials that were fall 1989 that was what we looked up on YouTube and it was it was like I remember the premise of that Sybil Shepherd I'm worth it kind of hair dye commercial and the the Norelco razor commercials where they show how it has the two blades so the first blade lifts up the hair and the next one cuts it and I was like I just have such a sense memory of these commercials because I would see them multiple times throughout the evening yeah. of watching this, but very little memory of the shows that I probably had have seen once.
0: Yeah, and I am now thinking about this Family Matters thing and how Urkel wasn't in the first half season. And I've got an idea to pitch to Netflix or Peacock or whatever. You know how they're doing all these latter-day sequels now, like the David Gordon Green Halloween, where they're like, you know what, everybody? Forget about those goofy sequels in the 80s. Forget about Halloween two through six. We're making a direct sequel to the original Halloween, and Laurie Strode isn't Michael Myers' sister, and you don't have to deal with any of that baggage. And that's the new trend with these latter-day sequels. So we need to do the Family Matters legacy, you know, pick up on the next season, but in a world where there was never any Urkel, where it remained a down-to-earth, grounded, working class family dealing with the foibles of everyday life. And what did that Iteration of the Winslow's, you know, net out to be in 2024.
1: Well, Harriet would love you for that because she is on record as being very unhappy with the fact that the Urkel storyline started taking over more and more of the storylines. Oh, really?
0: Of you mean the Family one who Matters. was not in the hot air balloon with Urkel but was off stage doing absolutely nothing, had an issue with them?
1: Not even really her so much. She was upset because the reason the youngest daughters judy eventually got fired was because they needed to make way for more urkel storylines and they didn't have enough room and what the producer said was no one's going to remember her anyway and the actress who played harriet was very offended that no one would remember one of her daughters and like and that you know they had bonded backstage and all these things ironically she had already
0: forgotten about the first little (laughs) girl that played the daughter
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's such a bummer. There's always that, you know, with the rise of something comes the fall of something else. But um, I think uh, the woman who played Harriet would be very much on board for that reboot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, look, I mean, for me, in terms of just quality, Perfect Strangers with a bullet, I mean, that's at this point, it's a no brainer.
1: Oh, yeah. Perfect Strangers, a hundred. And that's because of the acting and the fun that they still are able to bring to bear in season five. You know, we often talk about these like later seasons, five, six, seven and and beyond kind of jumping the shark and season premiere, season five, Larry and Bauke still got it. So. Yeah,
0: well now I want to go back to Perfect Stranger season one. And like, what is that like? Is it the two of them having like long conversations about what it's like to be an immigrant in the Absolutely United States? Absolutely <laughs> <laughs> But I do, I yeah, it is fun funny to to think, like, did it, was it a little more restrained or was it so wacky from the start? I feel like just hearing myself say that, I think I know what the answer is. (laughs) Anyway, so much for the first ever TGIF. What are we talking about next week?
1: Next week, we're learning how to drive. Taxi, Season 2, Episode 3, Reverend Jim, A Space Odyssey. The Facts of Life, Season 7, Episode 14, 2D Drives. Sister, Sister, Season 2, Episode 9, Two for the Road. And Eight Simple Rules, Season 1, Episode 4, Wings.
0: Yep, that's next week. And until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog.